Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, Brandon Showalter, and he is a writer for the Christian Post, and he also appears in a new documentary on the trans issue, and the documentary is called Dead Name, and it unveils intimate portrait of parents raising trans-identifying kids. So we're going to get into what this film is all about, and then Brandon also has some some other stories from his research and his reporting on this this kind of uh crazy trans issues but first a word from our sponsor this is chris christensen and back in 2006 i started a simple project a project to try and introduce more people to the bible through bible study called the bible study podcast it's a simple name and a simple idea each week every week we study one chapter of the bible talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Welcome, Brandon Showalter. Thank you, Beckett. Good to be with you. Good to have you. So, you appear in this new documentary called Dead Name, and I briefly just touched on it in the beginning in the in the uh, intro, but tell us what this documentary is and what the, the term dead name means. Well, the documentary is about how gender ideology, transgender dogma uh, disrupts family life, and it profiles three families that have been disrupted, uh, ruptured, indeed irretrievably fractured, I would say. And it humanizes the issue of what transgender ideology is uh, amid increasing scrutiny of the medical issues, blockers, hormones, surgery, these things that are starting to be discussed more, even a little bit in the mainstream press. Reuters did a big investigative piece last fall, as did the New York Times and the New York Magazine Intelligence or this is about sort of a fly-on-the-wall, intimate portrait glimpse of what families are enduring and how this ideology sort of is a wedge between parents and children. These are the stories we have not heard from. We, this is a perspective we haven't heard much about. Unless you read the parents of inconvenient truths about transgenderism, the pit, Substack, and other online forums, you wouldn't really know about what families are enduring because the legacy press largely ignores them. 
Uh, they only feature those who support their children identifying as transgender. Uh, and so this film gives these suffering parents a much needed voice. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched the film the other night and it was pretty devastating to see yeah. these family members, just these parents really that are just completely tortured by yeah. the fact that their child is just has transitioned or is transitioning or once and and just the the kind of absolute it, it kind of leaves these parents not only dumbfounded but just also so uh confused because they're being uh, they're being called bigots if they don't fully embrace right. this this ideology they're like family members even of and their own families are calling mm -hmm. them Bigots yeah. are castigating them for not embracing this whole trans ideology. Now, talk about some because one of the one of the kids in the film, he uh, how old I think he's how old was he when he started trans transitioning? Is this the young boy? The young boy, yeah. Yes. Well, we believe he he was four years old when all of a sudden, through some kind of combination between the mother was a lesbian, her ex became to the belief that he was actually a girl. And then the preschool daycare uh, totally went along and, you know, completely capitulated and kowtowed to his new identity and whether or not he was the one that really started identifying as a girl or it was imposed, it's not so clear, but he was a very, very young child. Um, and if you watch the trailer and I would urge everyone to do so, you even see videos of him and he had apparently picked this up from, his mother's ex about transgender surgery on his genitals. And let me tell you, Beckett, it's pretty jarring to see a child who's four or five at six at most speaking about that kind of disfigurement. I mean, what child should know about any of this? I don't think, I mean, it's, it, it's just, so, it makes your eyes pop and your jaw drop <laughs> to, to see that. But he is still, um, I think he's in a better place now from what I've understood. I don't know how old he is now. This was, it's been in the last few years, but he's about this, that same age. This was when he was a little bit younger, but the confusion um, that was imposed on him and that he got mired into as a young kid was quite profound. Uh, and he became two different people, a girl named Rosa with one parent and a boy named Jonas uh, with his mom who miraculously has custody of him. Which is which is crazy, and because in this day and age, usually parents who are suspicious or hesitant to go along with the transing of their children do not win in court. Um, yeah, that's not giving too much away about his particular case in the movie. You, it, it becomes clear that though she she still has a lot of decision making power, um, but he's still kind of torn in two between those two identities that he's that he's forced to live. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because the, the he has two moms. Mm -hmm. His moms are lesbians and they're mm -hmm. they're divorced. I'm I'm, mm -hmm. I'm assuming they're they were married and now are divorced, right? That's right. That's right. And um so but it's it's interesting that one of the mothers is mm -hmm. pro trans and one is not pro trans. Right. So uh so there's this that tension between mm -hmm. the mothers and and the and then there's the tension between and I don't want to give too much away but there's right. the tension with the son and like between the two mothers mm -hmm. going to one mother's house being called Rosa going to another mother's house being called, uh, I forgot the, his Jonas. Name. Yeah. Jonas. Jonas. Yeah. So, um, it's just, uh, but my, one of my questions is how, 
how is this even being allowed for such a young child? What, what are, what are the legal legalities? What's the dynamics? Like where, what state is this in? Uh, well, that was in Massachusetts, but this is really, okay. uh, I mean, Northampton, it's, it's said in the movie that that's, I mean, I think that's where Smith College is. So it's a very liberal area, obviously, but it doesn't really matter that it's a sort of a notoriously blue state. Even in deep red states, this is happening to very young children. And you'd be surprised at, you know, even while there might be more cultural resistance to it in the surrounding community, uh, a phrase that I often use is institutional capture, ideological capture, where medical institutions, even for very young children in very conservative states, are quick to affirm a child, no matter how young they are, as the opposite sex, if they say they are. This child self-declaration is the final word. It's the authoritative word. And in the in the affirmative model, which is what Bill, who is the parent, um, another Sean. parent featured, uh, he's the father of Sean. Yeah. It's, it's just whatever the child's word is, that's what goes. And parents who raise the alarm, who raise caution, uh, they are, they are abused, as you said, as they're called bigots, they're derided. And it's a common thread between the three families that are profiled, Helen, Amy, and Bill, that this fractures the entire family unit. In addition to sort of wedging itself between the parent and child, as I was saying a moment ago, that's what how this ruptures the family bonds there. This, this disrupts other relationships. It's not just between the parent who is hesitant or opposed to the transing of the kid and the kid himself or, her, or herself, but this foments discord between spouses, between other family members and the extended family and into the broader community as well. Uh, perhaps worst of all uh, is the institute, as I was saying with institutional capture, every professional society or place where you thought you might be able to get some help for your child, whether that be in Bill's case, a psychiatrist at the hospital, or I think Helen had a, a counselor who was trying, a therapist that was trying to help her kid. Yeah. They have been captured by this dogma. They parrot the line of the gender ideologues and are more than happy to facilitate a transition of a child over and against the wishes of the parent. And not only do they undermine the parents, but they actively, in some cases, marginalize the parent. And so they are left in a, in a straight jacket of torment because the places that thought they could get some help for their kids are actually destroying them further. So unreal. And so uh, this is a broader question, but how, why has this ideology been ratcheted up so quickly? So um, in the last five years, what, what do you think, what do you think was the impetus for this, this ideology to just explode in our culture? We'll be right back after this short break. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, you can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app. Besides Romans 1. <laughs> well, Besides Romans Romans 1. 1 what, like, what is, what is going on with this? This is like so, uh, it's so just 
it seems so extreme mm -hmm. and so bizarre yeah. that it's accelerated so quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, there are many factors. And I think as a believing small o Orthodox Christian, the Romans one needs to, that needs sort of, sort of the foundation. And we see Ephesians six, the spiritual warfare of this entire, yeah. of what's going on here, where the enemy of our souls is waging war on the human body. And he always tries to twist, twist and distort male and female. That's just, he focuses on that with some ferocious rage. Um, so that's the backdrop. And I, I wouldn't want to ever yeah. you know, underestimate just how much of a course that is. But I think the other, the other thing that just is really important is that when you think about what transgenderism is, and it is many things, but one of the things that I like to say is that it is primarily a medical scandal. But it's different from past medical scandals in that all the institutions, as I was saying, Aren't I mean, ice pick lobotomies and thalidomide, the medical scandals of yesteryear weren't celebrated and marketed to our youth as this cool identity. This is this fad, this craze, this cool thing to be. Um, but as Jesus said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there's been there have been some investigative uh, journalists who have taken a look into this. And I am convinced, given how much money big pharma, big medicine can make if you put a child on blockers and you follow it on with cross-sex hormones and then perhaps throw in a surgery here and there. There's a lot of money to be made there. I mean, these they're blockers a patient. are- they're, they're basically a patient for the rest of their they're life. They're a lifelong right? medical patient, but you're yeah. making, they're making a lot of money, a subcutaneous implant for a blocker to halt natural puberties, thousands of dollars. And so if you can get a whole swath of children on them for several years, and then that, that we're talking millions of dollars potentially- and people don't like to think about that because that sounds so tinfoil hat conspiratorial. But uh, the the research is out there. Um, my friend Jennifer Billick has, is the go-to resource on that. I've done a little digging around um, in some of the medical journals where they're doing the surgeries on youth. And those make a lot of money. They are highly complex surgeries. They require a lot of follow-up care. Uh, Matt Walsh and his crew down at the Daily Wire exposed Vanderbilt where they even had someone on tape right. saying that, this is a big moneymaker for our hospital. So that, that aspect can't be uh, denied where people are really making a lot of money on these drugs and these surgeries. Um, it's a root kind of evil. But uh, the spiritual aspect as well, I just, when you, you have sort of narcissistic sociopath doctors, and I don't think it's too strong to call them that, uh, yeah. <laughs> marketing surgeries to young girls on TikTok, and it's, it, it's, you really do start to recognize radical evil and when I hear from parents sometimes when their children get swept up into this and they send me pictures of their bearded daughters because they've been taking testosterone or their disfigured sons, it really can put you in a dark place. And I've had to lean on the Lord in a very, very new way as I've been doing this work. But um, and so what, there's, what lot, there's many factors of, contributing to it, for sure. What, per, what percentage of the, I mean, what per, it's the, I guess this is hard to say, but what percentage of the medical community is on board with this or, 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 and I am assuming a lot of them are on board simply because they don't want to be canceled or, or fired or whatever, but it's, it's very hard uh, for, for doctors to speak up, particularly if they work within certain institutions. Uh, I think most doctors are not in favor of it, but they're awfully quiet because they don't want to be fired or risk losing their livelihoods because the powers that be, and the money that's behind this, the ideological power to conform to this, to be in the good graces of <laughs> the supposedly good people, like they just sort of keep their heads down and work. 
but the pressure is mounting for doctors to really go along with this, and they're 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 really afraid. I interviewed some endocrinologists back in 2018, where one of them told me that he went to a doctor who I think worked for Kaiser, and uh, he, I'm not sure about that, but I'm pretty sure that was the institution where he worked, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the one. Uh, and he said, well, I don't agree with this, but I have a family to feed. And so clearly there was some fear there. Uh, and there have been people fired from their jobs. There was a case somewhere in the Midwest where a very prominent, I think it was Ohio, don't quote me on that, a very prominent plastic surgeon who was world renowned for his skills and had, was known for completing some very complex reparative plastic surgeries. And because he wouldn't agree to do a gender surgery, as they're called, uh, he, I think, either relinquished a position or he was ousted, but there was tremendous pushback against him for taking the principled stand. And we're already, we're also seeing, you know, Catholic hospitals who won't do these kinds of surgeries be contested in yeah. courts. And there's lawsuits around those kind of things too. Um, medical ethics, it sure seems, particularly with the advance of this gender ideology, is collapsing very quickly uh, because these are perfectly healthy body parts that are being cut off. Even you know, girls as young as 13 having their breasts amputated. And I can give you the citation to prove that that's happening. That's not fear mongering. That's really real. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I said this on an episode before when we were talking about this, but um, this is no different from Joseph Mengele doing experiments on children in Auschwitz. You know, I've had, Jew, I've had Jewish readers send me emails saying as much. Yeah, I mean, it's the exact same thing. And it's it's so dangerous. And it's so um, it's medical malpractice is what it is. It's absolutely. And I I mean, I think in the years to come soon, I think and it may already be happening. But I think a lot of these uh, kids who are transitioning are going to kind of come to their senses and start suing the medical establishment. We're starting to see some of that already. Uh, the, perhaps the most famous case is Chloe Cole, who Kaiser Permanente, Oakland, I believe, is where she underwent her medical transition. And there's a lawsuit now that she's filed. She has largely, in the last several months, become the face of those who were transed as minors. Many detransitioners have... 2022 was kind of a banner year for those who had... For detransitioners, as they are called, to start speak to increasingly mainstream sources. The New York Post did a profile of several of them, but some of them were more late teens, you know, early adults kind of trans. And so while people may feel sympathy for them, uh, there's sort of thinking, well, well, you were an adult. You decided to do this. And maybe that was wrong, but you were an adult. Well, it's a whole different ballgame when, in Chloe's case, she was put on blockers and hormones, I believe at 12 or 13, very young. And she had her breasts amputated at age 15. So that's a people get very, very disturbed and rightly so when you start disfiguring a child's body in pursuit yeah. of a physical impossibility. Yeah, and I've, I've also said this on a on an episode before. It's I remember in the uh, in the nineties, I think it was in the nineties. Yeah, Hillary Clinton. I, she was, um, she was the first lady at the time, mm-hmm. and but she was, you know, so obsessed and upset about genital mutilation in Africa mm-hmm. in certain African countries mm-hmm. and, you know, raising all this awareness about it. And it's like, but that's exactly what's happening now. This is the same thing happening now, but there's no, where's Hillary Clinton now on this, on this issue? Like yeah, she's, she's completely she's, silent. This is worse. She's made statements. Mutilation. She's made 
she's made statements. I don't know if I've heard her say anything about the transing of children, but transgender dogma, she's been fully, fully supportive of it. It seems uh, I, I have seen statements from her to that effect. It's funny that you mentioned that because uh, when I was a 14 or 15 year old kid, I remember reading my parents Reader's Digest and the cover story was Waris Deary, the Somalian born supermodel who has a campaign to end FGM female gender mutilation. Yeah. And I remember as a 14 or 15 year old reading that cover story and feeling this kind of visceral horror. Like of, I knew there was evil in the world, but you're going to cut up a girl's genitals. I mean, for what? And this is just the evil was so bizarre and horrible. And I re- just remember feeling so disturbed by it all. Well, that's exactly how I felt at age 31 when the reality of what was going on within our children's hospitals and in clinics nationwide, that they were, administering blockers to children to arrest their normal natural puberty, again, in pursuit of a lie, and that they were being rendered sterile, particularly because if you follow blockers with hormones, it's almost a guarantee that you'll be infertile for for life. You can't get that back. And then the surgeries, which were really brutal, and I started to learn about all of those, and I just, something inside me snapped, as I have often said. And it was a very similar feeling that I had as when I was reading the Reader's Digest article yeah. as a teenager. But at age 31, I had a job in journalism, so I figured I could do something about it. Yeah. Well, and, it's, and it doesn't help that this is also being celebrated at the highest levels right. in the White House. This trans, trans phenomenon and trans ideology is being celebrated, I mean, in government. Like, so yeah. it's, this is... Uh, All this throughout is not- culture, the government, in the schools, in media, in movies, magazines... It's everywhere. There's nowhere to escape. Uh, And particularly with the tech culture in which we're living in, our children are becoming enticed into it on a whole nother level. It's almost this, I mean, it is, it's so demonic, but it's this idea. It's like the more transgressive you can be, the better. Like whatever is the most extreme transgression, you know, subverting things, whatever you can do in the most extreme way is is in our culture now idolized as somehow virtuous and somehow, um, Mm -hmm. you know, something to be admired and honored, Mm -hmm. which is, is, it's like so upside down, obviously. I mean. Yeah. The, it just, there seems to be no limit at all, no bottom to any of this. And transgressive is (laughs) an entirely appropriate word. Uh, Tucker Carlson did a documentary film on Fox Nation called Transgressive. I was actually in that documentary and it breaks every possible boundary. And you see um, the exploitation of children and the idea that a child who is in the throes of puberty or even before can give consent to irreparable harm. Again, in pursuit of a lie, it's just chilling when you think about it. Like, what are we doing to the human body and what are we doing to children? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you sit back and just the weight of it is so un, unpleasant to think about. And I've perhaps one of the most frustrating aspects of being a journalist on this beat is that it's so horrible that people can't bear to think about it. They're like, oh, that can't be happening. But no, it is. It really is. <laughs> you got to yeah. believe me. And I can show you like proof that it is happening. I can show you pictures of the, the medical harm and the journal articles proving that it is, but it's like this analysis paralysis sets in with most people because they just don't want to believe that yeah. it's like that. And that was the case. You mentioned Mengele. 
that was kind of how it was <laughs> during the World War II era. People couldn't believe that such atrocities were going on because they were so terrible. But they are going on indeed, and they have to be confronted. And how did you end up in the documentary? What, how did that process happen? Well, the filmmaker saw a speech that I gave. A friend uh, had sent her. I gave a speech in 2020. And the filmmaker is Taylor Reese. Yes, Brokenhearted Films. Uh, and I, she reached out. And uh, I asked if I would contribute. She told me her vision for the film. She wanted to humanize this story from the parents' perspective. Uh, and she became acquainted with some parents and wanted to give them a voice. Uh, and the parents she chose, Helen, Amy, and Bill, all have, you know, all of their stories are uniquely terrible, but they have some eerily similar threads that connect them all, mm -hmm. uh, particularly the institutional capture, as I mentioned, but also how it fractures their entire families. Uh, the schools that are par participants in the indoctrination that their children were somehow in the wrong body and needed to trans themselves into this other person. Uh, and it's the, the nightmare and the descent into this world that they never knew existed. And it just erupted out of nowhere. They had no paradigm or grid for any of this. And it really makes you think and it invites you into their stories uh, and gives you a window into what it's really like because you won't see their stories represented in the, the mass media and the legacy press because they are wedded to the narrative that if they're going to showcase a parent of a trans identified child, it's the supportive parent who wrestled over, you know, I just want to support my kid. And it's, it's all framed in a positive light. Well, as Paul Harvey used to say, here's the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, that's what's showcased in dead name. Well, what's okay. And what about the threat? Because that the the, I mean, in my opinion, it's a it's a red herring. But what about this constant drumbeat of a threat of, you know, suicide? Yeah, like if That's, we don't allow this child to transition, they're gonna this child will kill himself herself. That's the question you asked me earlier. What dead name means, and I forgot to answer it, so I'll just tell you briefly as an introduction to the answer to that this question. But a, a person's dead name—that's transgender parlance for their given name. Usually parents choose the name for their son and daughter with great deliberation. It has special meaning. And then when a child identifies as the opposite sex or some other gender identity, the first step in the process is to choose a new name that's more likely to be associated with the opposite sex. And if a parent doesn't go along with this new name or any other aspect of this new identity, they are accused and trans activists tell children to say to their parents that they will take their own lives by suicide if the parents don't go along with it. And so that usually causes parents to just reel and freeze. And indeed, there have been some children that have been so troubled in this way that they have taken their own lives so that they know that there are these anecdotal reports of that happening. And the last thing that a parent wants to endure is the death of their child but that is the manipulation and the chief threat that is used in order to strong arm the parents in order to go along with this. Um, and, and just uh, people, I sometimes I, I hear people say, well, parents should just stick up for themselves and just like, and just say, that's just ridiculous. Then just reject it. It's like, you really don't know what it's like to be told that your child might take their own lives. And it, it's a unique, horror all its own to endure that kind of psychological, you know, gaslighting and manipulation over something so serious. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that there is no evidence <laughs> to prove uh, that 
unless you allow your child to go on blockers and hormones and undergo a surgery, that they are very likely to or will take their own lives by suicide. It's manipulation, pure and simple. And in fact, the study that is often cited in this regard is out of Sweden, and it actually shows the opposite, where though it didn't measure children, I don't think, from I think 1973 to 2003, there was a 30-year measuring of what were then known as transsexuals at post-operative. And they found, the data showed, because they followed them all in the country of Sweden, that that group of people who had undergone these surgeries was 19 times higher, 19 times higher hazard of completed suicide when measured against the general population. So it's a total lie, but it's used as a weapon to instill fear in parents that their children are going to die unless they go along with this experimental medicalization. Yeah, and aren't, are some countries like Sweden and I think maybe the UK, aren't they starting to ban they are. Uh, this, this uh, you know, puberty blockers and, and uh, surgeries for minors? Is that, is that happening? Across Europe, they are backing away for sure. The UK just ordered the Tavistock Clinic, which was the main gender identity clinic in the country, to close. I think we'll have to keep a watchful eye on what happens there because of the regional centers that are, they say they're going to open there. But symbolically, it's huge to see the Tavistock, which kind of has a storied history of some scandals, to see that be ordered to shutter is, is big. Sweden also, the Karolinska Hospital said, I think it was April of 2021, it was fairly recently, within recent years, that they were not going to do this to children anymore. And it was only under very, very tight research kind of restrict, very tightly guarded Finland. Also, I think France as well. Meanwhile, the U S and Canada seem to be stomping on the gas and it continues to be celebrated here. Uh, and there's been some places where I think Alabama and Arkansas, Florida, Arizona, some States are trying to curtail this with legislation and medical board reviews, but they're pouring gasoline on the fire here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, this is just so going against the Hippocratic oath that doctors take. It's just, that's the question I get all the S all the time. Whatever happened to first do no harm. Yeah. It's dead. (laughs) It's yeah, it's dead. And speaking uh, in just the title again, dead name. And I mean, it's a cardinal sin. Now, if you call your child by his or her given name. Correct. Like if you, if you, that's, I mean, that's how extreme it's become. It's like, if you call your child who's transitioned by their real name, it's like, you know, you've done the worst. You're it's done like, an act of violence. It's, oh, it's, it's an act of it's, violence. It's, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. Uh, un, unforgivable. No, and it's, but it is, yeah. it's emblematic. The filmmaker, uh, Broken Hearted Films, she shared with me how, uh, and I wrote this in a Christian Post review of the film. And again, I'm a participant in it. The dead name, she chose that as the title for the film because it's emblematic of the entire spectrum of problems that parents face once this ideology comes on the scene in their lives. And so whether that's dealing with the schools who are socially transitioning their their kids while they're in the classroom or at the hospital and they're trying to ask questions, everything just kind of dies. And it's this slow death of everything that they thought they knew as their child tries to blot out their entire childhood and cancel all of the memories of previous years. It really represents a lot. And, you know, of course the kids trying to kill off their name, you know, a name conveys identity. And so when you're saying that that's dead, it creates great pain 
in the hearts of parents who love their children more than their own lives and took great care to call them their children. I mean, it's, you choose a name with great affection for this child that you love and to hear your child call that death. It's, it's a searing, searing anguish. Yeah. I mean, I just think about like in the eighties, kind of the most transgressive thing you would do as a child is, is get a tattoo or something. Yeah. And that, that was considered, you know, beyond the pale by the culture and my parents. And now it's just like, so just out of control. And now you're, you're on the front lines of this. You've researched a bunch of this and you reported on it. Tell us other than the film stuff, tell us some, some of some stories that you've come upon that are striking. Well, perhaps one of the most striking stories has been, um, well, it actually just happened last fall or late, late August. I was just so angry and I, I do some of my best writing when I'm angry. It seems <laughs> I don't want to just be this angry journalist, but I just, I was so frustrated because, uh, Boston children's hospital was exposed. They had doctors on their own YouTube channel, uh, with bearing their own watermark, doctors bragging about doing these trans surgeries on minors. They were doing it. Uh, I guess they just didn't expect people to see it. But the libs of TikTok gal, Chaya Rechik, um, retweeted those um, those videos, and she has a very large following. And so suddenly the public saw that a prominent children's hospital, and Boston was where the first pediatric gender clinic opened in 2007, by the way, Everybody was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then you see this array of media coverage, either minimizing it or denying it. And then she also then made a phone call to National Children's Hospital here in D.C. and asked if they do hysterectomies on minors in pursuit of a trans identity. And the two people on the audio phone call that she released said that they did. And she had previous archive material on their website that indicated that they did. But then the media sort of ran interference for this children's hospital here in DC. And I just got so angry and I was like, I've seen the literature. I know that they are doing these surgeries on minors. And so I spent part of my weekend. <laughs> so I do my best, my best writing when I'm frustrated and on the weekend when I'm, you know, off hours, <laughs> but yeah. I just made a coherent list of journal articles, peer reviewed medical journals where the gender clinicians don't say in publications like the Lancet, the Journal of Clinical Medicine, the Journal of Sexual Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology, prominent peer-reviewed publications that are widely you know, trusted by doctors where they admit to doing these surgeries of various kinds, mastectomies, vaginoplasties, uh, hysterectomies on minors. They say the ages of the patients that they perform these surgeries on in the articles. And so I just had to say, mass media you guys are deceitful liars because you're saying this isn't happening. Meanwhile, I've got the receipts where, where you have yourself admitted to doing it. And so if people don't want to believe the Christian post because it's, oh, you know, those evil Christians who are just opposed trans or whatever, I'm like, the original source material speaks for itself. Um, so that that caused a lot of eyes to really be open because, again, people people have this analysis paralysis about them when you talk about this kind of thing. And I've personally interacted with people, Beckett, where particularly if I show them a picture of a of a phalloplasty surgery, for example, where they harvest you know tissue from the forearm in order to make a fake penis for a, for a female patient, that the color just drains from their faces because it's so bad. They can't believe that these surgeries are legal or that they're even happening. 
Um, but they just don't know because the media will not speak truthfully on this subject. Though in recent months, there's hopefully, we, we hope, more of a trend of some scrutiny emerging in, as I said, Reuters, New York Times. Yeah. It's starting to happen. But yeah. even as the medical issues are sort of in their infancy and starting to be scrutinized and get mainstream attention, and it's not just conservative media, the family rupture and the, the disruption that has happened as a result of this ideology, we are only now beginning to see how that will all unfold. And I think dead name is perhaps can be the impetus for greater discussion about all of that. And cause it showcases what these families go through um, so poignantly. And are you getting blowback yourself for reporting on this kind of stuff? Well, I do sometimes, but I think a lot of people sort of expect the Christian post to say these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, who really gets blowback are radical feminists and lesbians and left-wing opponents of this kind of thing. Uh, the mass media often frames opposition to transgender ideology as a right versus left kind of thing. And it's really not. Uh, I have my own thoughts about how Republicans and Democrat politicians are handling this. And I won't bore your audience with any of those, but it's, it really is. It's so much more complicated, uh, Beckett. And I hear, I get phone calls from a wide spectrum of people and I don't care what people's politics are. Like, I don't want to see a medical scandal ensnare another victim, whatever they believe, whether they are, you know, Christians as we are, or a different faith or a different politics. Like this is harmful, objectively speaking. And it's wrong to do this to the human body. It's wrong to sterilize children. We shouldn't even have to say any of this. But here we are. And uh, many people are raising their voices. And they're not conservative. They're not Christian. And uh, they have tremendous bravery because they really face the wrath of uh, gender activists. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to, guys, we're going to put the the link to the trailer below this video. And Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. And um, tell us just how people can connect to you and and follow you and find you. Well, my social media, on social media, I'm, uh, Instagram is where I post photos of food and I have fun there. So don't follow me there (laughs) unless you want food pictures, which um, I'm a foodie. Uh, At Twitter, I'm at at Brandon M. Show. All of our print reporting is at ChristianPost.com. We recently did a podcast series, an investigative documentary style podcast series called Generation Indoctrination, where we go into a lot of depth on these issues, particularly as they affect children and families and women in prison, which is another issue all its own because they're now allowing men who identify as women into women's correctional facilities. That's just such a mess. But there's also the Dead Name film, as we've been speaking about today, which is available for a small fee on Vimeo. Do go watch it. It's so important. Independent filmmakers are filling a very important void because until the media, until we finally make the legacy press pay attention, uh, we need to hear the stories of those who have been harmed. And these families are exhibit A of all of that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. And guys, as a reminder, again, we're going to put the link below for the dead name film. And so you guys can rent it or buy it and uh, please do so. It's very, very important and it's very moving and, uh, and it's not, it's, it's only, it's under an hour. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's 50 minutes long. So thank you, Brandon, for coming on. Thank you, Beckett. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. 
For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Have you ever felt conflict between your faith and feelings? If so, you're not alone. My name is Corley Mercouillier. I'm a licensed therapist and the host of the Therapy and Theology podcast, where we explore popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. I want to invite you to join me every Thursday as we fearlessly name the complexities of our reality, grow in the awareness of who we are, and rediscover the power and purpose of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. Subscribe today at lifeaudio.com.